If you would, please remain standing as we pray. Precious God, we give you thanks for your providence and for your love for us. And as we present our, our first fruits back to you, we ask that you would bless both, both the gift and the giver, that you would use these gifts for the furtherance of your kingdom in this place and beyond. And Father, as we open your word now, we ask that, that you, by your spirit, would speak, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to perceive, and hearts that are tender and capable of receiving your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Nathan, thank you for the kind words earlier. Uh, this congregation is very much an answer to uh, prayers for us as well, and so we're glad to be here, and, and I uh, feel privileged to get to preach this morning. And so today we begin a new series, a uh, new series on the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah, it's interesting, we, we know Jonah, right? You know, all the kids are being dismissed right now, but, but for a lot of people, the thought is that the book of Jonah essentially exists as like the part of the Bible so, so, there, so we can have children's church, right? So, so our kids can learn some type of, of what many would think uh, seems like a fairy tale that would keep them interested and make for a good picture to color. Um, the reason Jonah is in the Bible uh, is so much more than that. Now, perhaps you know Jonah, okay? We, we pick up information along the way. But what I want us to do with the book of Jonah for the next four weeks is to attempt to approach this text with fresh eyes. Because God speaks so loudly in this passage, particularly to, to religious people. And I'm assuming on some level that that may include the people in this room this morning. Because you're, you're here, okay? You came to church this morning. Um, and, and so there's part of us that kind of go, oh, this, this, this Jesus stuff, this Christian thing, yeah, I'm into that, okay? I like this kind of stuff. And yet the book of Jonah really is targeted towards people like you and like, and like me. Because there's a certain mindset that, that many of us have when, when we just we look out at the world. And, and we look at it this way. There are good people in the world, and, and there are bad people in the world. And God is for the good people and not the bad people. And so what I need to do is be part of the good people and not the bad people by being a good person and not a bad person. The book of Jonah is going to completely dismantle this line of thinking, showing us that that to borrow a quote from Jack Miller, it's a quote that Nathan appeals to frequently, that we are far worse and more broken than we even realize, than we dare to imagine. And yet in the gospel, we are, are, are far more loved than we could ever dream possible by a God who, who is merciful and gracious. So let us take a look at the book of Jonah. We're going to look at chapter 1 today. Uh, it's found on page 774 uh, in your pew Bible. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the gods will will, will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. And then he said to them, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And he said to them, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered up a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The title of our message today is Running and Rescue. And those are actually going to serve as our, our two points for today. Our running... Not, not just Jonas, but ours as well, and God's rescue. So we're going to begin with our first point, our running from God. We are, we're, we're thrown in to this passage with verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this expression, the word of the Lord, that tells us a great deal about who this guy Jonah is. For the word of the Lord to come to somebody means that person is a prophet, Jonah has a special calling from God where God reveals his will to him and then it's Jonah's job to take that message to its assigned audience. And Jonah's done this before. Back in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah declares to Israel that despite their sin, God's going to restore their borders and let them prosper. And then Jonah is validated as a prophet when what he says is going to happen actually does happen. But in this instance, Jonah's task is not to speak to Israel. Instead, Jonah is told, go to to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, to be clear, Nineveh was not part of Israel. Nineveh was in Assyria, a different people, another nation. 
that was gaining dominance at that time through, through military might that, that was known for being especially heinous and brutal. Think ISIS. Think Nazi Germany. And you're getting on the right track of what these people were known for. The Assyrians were vile. They were wicked people. They were the enemies of God and his purposes. If, if, if there's such a thing as evil in the world, then these people embody it. And so Jonah, the prophet, the, 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 the good person, according to verse 1, has been given a task. Go to the largest city that embodies all of these values and tell the bad people that God doesn't like what they're doing. Now, if you're functioning with kind of like a religious mindset, you're sort of going, yeah, that, so far so good. That sounds good. And then we get to verse 3. But Jonah. Jonah, this prophet, he gets in a boat, and he doesn't go to Nineveh, but instead goes to a place called Tarshish. And we don't know a ton about Tarshish beyond this fact. It's the opposite direction from Nineveh, which, which throws everything off. The good people are supposed to obey, right? And Jonah doesn't. Now, if I ask you, why did Jonah disobey? You may have the answer. You may know the rest of the story. But here's the thing. At this point in our text, we don't know the specifics of Jonah's motivation. We're not going to get to that until chapter 4. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get there. But for today, what I want us to do is to explore something more basic, which is this. The reason that Jonah doesn't do what God tells him to do is because he didn't want to. Jonah knows exactly what God wants, but here's the thing. What God wants and what Jonah wants isn't the same. What God has called Jonah to do does not meet up with his expectations of what God should be doing or should have him do. God is not behaving in the way that Jonah thinks he should. And so Jonah runs. It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be provocative. But as shocking as it's supposed to be, what I want us to do today is to attempt to identify with Jonah. Because though we may not hop on a a ship and defiantly run away from God, we also run away from God and his will for us as well. What I want us to see is there's something about human beings universally even religious people like you and me, that when we are exposed to God's word, we run from it. A moment ago, we read Romans chapter 5 for our assurance of pardon, which states this, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son. Now, I want us to stop and think about that for a second. Our text tells us that human beings, universally, because of our sin, apart from God's grace, are enemies of God. Enemies. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? I mean, sure, we, we, we do the occasional bad thing, but enemies? Hostile to God? Do we really believe this? I want you to picture someone for a moment. Not a churchgoer, but, but he's, he's not anti-God, Okay? Tornado comes through town, he may offer up a prayer to somebody up there. He's not an atheist. He just sort of just is living life. He's doing his thing. He wakes up every morning, he 
walks his dog, makes breakfast, goes to work to provide for his family. He even coaches Little League after he gets done working. On the weekend, he does his honey-do list. He's not worshiping the devil. He's not planning genocide. He's not beating his wife. He's just sort of living life. He's doing his thing. We hear about the Assyrians, and we, we, we get, you know, yes, those people, there's, that's the enemies of God right there. D- depraved, vile, human beings with no conscience. But how can this guy be an enemy of God? He sounds like a good guy. Sounds like a guy that, frankly, I'd like to be friends with. I want us to think back to the garden for a moment. Adam and Eve, our first parents are placed there in paradise, to enjoy a a perfect relationship with God, with each other, and with all of creation. But God puts certain parameters in place for their good. And so to enjoy this paradise, they would need to trust God, and they would need to obey him. And then the serpent comes in, and he asks a question. Just ask a question. Did God really say that? And the point of the question was simple. The point of the question was to sow seeds in Eve's mind about God's character, to change her view of God, where God all of a sudden moves from being this person who's created all this and created her and placed her, this good, generous, gracious God, to this God who's who's holding out on her, this God who's depriving her of something. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, Eve sees God's law but she has lost sight of God himself, and thus abstracting his law from his loving and generous person, she was deceived into hearing law only as a negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of a heavenly father. Here's what's going on. Because Eve no longer trusts God, she no longer trusts God's law, and so she doesn't believe that what God told her to do is good because it comes from someone who loves her and longs to protect her and longs to see her prosper. And then the serpent goes in for the kill with an offer that's just just too appealing to resist. The serpent told her that that she could be like God. How? How? How would Adam and Eve become like God? Here's how. By exercising their will against his expressed will. The way Adam and Eve would achieve godlike status was by refusing to live under his authority, by discarding what he had told them and determining for themselves how they would live. And it's when we understand this that we begin to grasp how Scripture can use this language of enemies. Because there, there's no weapons being detonated in the garden. What you find, though, in Genesis chapter 3 is a coup d'etat. It's a declaration of war. Who is going to govern this planet? Under whose authority will humanity live under? And the same battle's been going on ever since. And it's important to point out this. Adam and Eve knew God. They were not atheists. They had a relationship with God. The same is true for Jonah. He's a prophet. He's not anti-God. The question is not, do these people acknowledge God's existence? The question is, will they submit to his rule? 
Because while there are militant atheists out there who want to deny God's existence and, and get rid of that, any sort of cultural presence of that in our society, most people in our culture are okay with God. God's fine. God is, I'm cool with God, provided that it's a God who knows his place. A God who, who we can appeal to, to give us something that we want or need. A God who can come and, and, and help us out of a jam. A God who can make us feel better about ourselves. A God who, who even offers advice. Okay? We're fine with advice so that our lives can go better for us. Most people are fine with that kind of God. The problem comes in when this God gives us his word. Because his word implies authority. A God who simply offers advice that we can take or leave is okay. Because in that model, who is in control? I am. I will take it or leave it. We decide whether or not we will accept it or reject it. But a God whose authority we have to submit to, a God who would dare tell us how to live, a God to whom we are accountable, that God is offensive to our sensibilities. Not not just to 21st century American culture. That's offensive to the human heart. And here's why. Because what the human heart craves more than anything is autonomy. It's freedom to have control over our lives, to do what we want without any hindrance. We want to be God. It's the nature of sin, and it's true of all of us. And what our text does, it shows us that religious people are not immune from this longing for autonomy. In fact, what we see here with Jonah is that there's a religious version of this that actually has kind of a particular edge to it. For Jonah, his disobedience is is deliberate. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. He is just determined not to do it, which has made his heart callous. Jonah is not presented as this person sort of grieving over what he's done. Where is he? He's asleep in the boat, in the midst of a heavy storm, no less. And what should give us pause as well is just how irrational what Jonah's doing is. Okay? It's inconsistent with what, what Jonah claims to believe. We're going to see throughout the book of Jonah that Jonah really knows Scripture. He knows Psalms like the one we read for our call to worship, Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? He knows that. And yet, what is he trying to do? The text is emphatic, running away from the presence of the Lord. He knows he can't escape God, and yet he's trying to. And yet, if you look at verse 9, Jonah describes himself as a Hebrew, as one who fears the Lord. And if you're tempted to like, be like me, you look at that and sort of go, Jonah, you, you fear the Lord? Because I'm not really seeing it in your, in your life. There seems to be this sort of massive disconnect between what you say you believe and how you actually live. And here's the thing. If you want to know what someone really believes, not what they say they believe. If you want to know what what you and I really believe, it shows up in how we live. Jonah's actions show that while he may say he fears the Lord, he does not believe that he can actually trust what God says. That what God is saying to him in this moment is actually right and good and worthy of his submitting to What we see in Jonah 
is that God's people, us, we're complex creatures. That, that even believers are sort of a mixed bag of belief and unbelief. Thus the statement from, from Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, think about this for, for yourself. The area or areas where, where you, know, you know exactly what God wants for you to do. You know God's will. You know, people obsess over all the time, what is, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? And typically that involves like, should I go to Wendy's or should I go to Taco Bell for lunch or something like that? Like, we, we obsess over these questions of like, you know, what is, what's, what is the future hold? What does God want me to do? And we obsess over that stuff. Meanwhile, like, our Bibles just kind of sit there and we don't read them. And yet, in, in his word, God has revealed his will. He says, you know, I've shown you, oh man, what is good. If you want to know God's will, it's there. We obsess over all this stuff that God hasn't shown, when in fact he's shown us a great deal. We see these things, these things he calls us to, with clear implications for our lives. And yet, what do we do? What do we do? We ignore what God calls us to do. Or we run from it. And where do we run from? Where do we run to try to get away from God's will? What we do is we run to places, or we run to people, or we run to experiences that we believe will make us happy, that we believe will give us life. We run to those things that make us feel safe, or make us feel powerful, or make us feel valuable. We run from God because he hasn't done what we thought he should do for us. He hasn't lived up to our expectations. We run to places like Tarshish, often with the same type of bold, callous, irrational abandon that Jonah does. And here's the thing. God won't let us do it, which brings us to our second point for the day. God's pursuit and rescue of rebels. Verse 3 starts with, but Jonah, verse 4 starts with, but the Lord. In other words, Jonah's rebellion is not the last word. God will not simply let Jonah go free. His response is to wreck Jonah's plans for escape. And the way God does this is to send a hurricane. I mean, the boat's about to fall apart. The the sailors believe they're going to die. They're throwing cargo overboard. They're, They're even seeking supernatural understanding and help. And the harder they try to get back to Back to land, get away from this storm, the worse it gets. And what's being clearly communicated from this is the severity of the storm is God's displeasure with what Jonah has done. God is no passive observer as Jonah seeks a life away from him. God hates our attempts at, at, at running from him. And he makes this clear by instilling fear within Jonah and the sailors. But, Though this storm may be violent, it is a grave mistake to to view this storm as nothing more than than just the punishment of an angry God. Because that's the way the religious mindset thinks, right? Jonah sinned, and now God's just going to go get him. I suspect that some of us kind of live with that low-level anxiety when we think about God. Constantly looking over our shoulder, worrying that God's just waiting for you to to make a mistake, so that he can come after you and punish you? If that's the way we interpret Jonah 1, then we're going to miss the glorious message of this chapter, because God is not trying just to scare Jonah. 
or to make him pay or to make his life miserable or just to show Jonah who's boss. God is pursuing Jonah to rescue Jonah. God's mission is to rescue Jonah from Jonah. God's God's pursuit is to rescue him from the belief that there is actually any real and meaningful life out there apart from him. In order to rescue Jonah, what's going to be necessary to get Jonah's attention was a storm. One of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes is this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences. But he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's exactly what we see here. Jonah's fast asleep, being awoken by a hurricane in order to get his attention. And the fact of the matter is, is, is that God does the same for us. I suspect that some of you this morning, you're, you're coming into this place with your hearts heavy. You're, you're going through a storm. Life is not panning out as you thought it would. You're crushed, and your heart is broken. I want to walk softly here now, because because Jesus is very clear. Not every storm is the direct result of individual sin. We make that mistake. Job's friends make that mistake. The disciples in John 9 make that same mistake, okay? Perhaps what you're experiencing is the result of of someone else's sin. We see that with the sailors, right? I mean, they're on a boat, and they're just kind of doing their thing. And this guy Jonah shows up. Perhaps it's the result of, of living in a fallen world. Whatever the case may be, though, God has a way of using the storms in our lives to get our attention. And as painful as they may be, as contrary to his perfect design as it may be, it's only through knowing the character of God in the middle of them, knowing that that, that through Christ God is for you and not against you, that we can come to trust God in the middle of the storm, a storm that ultimately he is sovereign over. We could even we could even trust him and, and view these storms as a gift of his grace so that we might be brought back to him or so that we might trust him in greater measure or so that we might even just become more like Jesus. And we need this. We need this, right? Because we, even as believers, are so prone to wander, so prone to wander away from the God that we love, and yet God in his grace pursues us again and again and again and again. Because here's the thing, the story of the Bible is not about good people being good and receiving God's blessing because of their goodness. It's not even the story of, like, decent people who, who you know, may make the occasional mistake, but deep down they are they're moral enough or they're smart enough or they're spiritual enough to, to cooperate with God. The story of the Bible is about people who want nothing to do with God. They want autonomy. Whether we're talking about the Assyrians, the sailors, Jonah, or people like, like you or me, with all of our mess, with all of our confusion, with all of our self-righteousness, with all of our sin, being pursued and rescued by God who loves sinners. A God who is far more gracious than we oftentimes give him credit for. A God who, who rather than giving up on his enemies or simply throwing down judgment on his enemies, out of sheer grace pursues his enemies in order to make them into his friends. And our passage foreshadows exactly the way that's made possible. 
Jonah is awoken. And it comes to light that he is the one responsible for this. And so Jonah, resigned to his fate, tells the sailors, you want to end this storm, throw me overboard. Human sacrifice. You want to be saved? My sin's the reason for this. Get rid of me and you'll be okay. Sacrifice me and you'll be spared. And these these sailors struggle with this because they're like, okay, the God's sending this storm. You're the prophet of that God and we're not so sure we want to do this. And so they start praying to to Yahweh, okay? Notice in there the, the words L-O-R-D, they're capitalized. We're going to get into that more in the next couple of weeks. But, but this is fascinating. They're praying to the Hebrew God. And they say this, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. Now, I hear this, it's innocent blood peace. And we know, like, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Jonah's not innocent. Like, Jonah's the reason you're there. And yet, as we read Jonah 1, did you notice similarities between that and Luke 8? Jesus and his disciples, they, they, they find themselves in a boat. They're in the middle of this insane storm. It's threatening the disciples the same way these sailors felt threatened. And just like Jonah, Jesus is fast asleep. Fast asleep in the boat. And after being awoken by his disciples and told of the threat, Jesus isn't thrown into a raging sea as a sacrifice like Jonah. He simply shows up, speaks a word, and the waves stop. And then the disciples are really scared because, like, who is this guy that, that controls all of this? Jesus wasn't thrown into the water to stop it. And yet a time's going to come when the Son of God will be thrown into the storm of God's wrath. Not for his sin, but because of the storm that all of our running, all of our rebellion, all of our sin, and he will shed his truly innocent blood, in the place of rebels, like you and me, to secure our relationship, to bring us back to God forever so that we can have a reconciled relationship with our Creator, a relationship marked not by, by uh, slavish fear or self-righteous obedience, but a relationship marked by, by love, by trust, by obedience that, that comes out of that love a genuine affection for a God who would love us so much to send his only begotten son so that we might become adopted sons and daughters of the king. That's the God of Scripture, a God who calls us to move towards him with our brokenness, not to run from him. And so maybe we do so again and again and again as he invites us to come to him again and again and again. There's one more similarity between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah's been thrown into the water. Certain death. But just like Jesus, this death isn't so certain. We'll get into that next week. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks that you pursue rebels. Rebels who long for autonomy. Rebels like us and that you save us from ourselves, and you give us the the true freedom of living in a right relationship with you. And so would you give us the faith to trust you all the more, especially in the midst of, of whatever storms we encounter. Enable us to believe that you are for us and not against us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.